Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. The last chapter, we discussed how a person deals with uh, challenges, material suffering, or how a person deals with uh, spiritual, spiritual suffering, spiritual handicaps. This chapter, he's going to deal with anxiety that results from a person feeling sad about the futility of constantly fighting the Yetzirah. That it seems like there's no end in sight. You can struggle your whole life, and as much as you accomplish, as much as you achieve, you're back to square one. And, um, you know, if you fight and you know that you're going to win at the end of the day, you know, that's, that's encouraging. But what happens if the more things change, the more they stay the same? And you have to constantly struggle with the Yetzirah. It's not like after doing the right thing and having a perfect record. You can have a perfect record. Thinking like a Jew and speaking like a Jew and acting like a Jew and speaking wholesome and acting wholesomely and thinking wholesome thoughts. And yet at the end of the day, you're still tempted and you still have temptations and you have to struggle against those temptations. So that can be very demoralizing and very discouraging. You want to begin? If, however, his sadness does not stem from anxiety over sins that he has committed, but from the fact that sinful thoughts and desire enter his mind. In other words, the moment a person has a thought, a wrong thought, enters into your mind. You don't control that. Because it just pops into your mind. We can't control our subconscious. These negative thoughts enter into our, our mind. Our control is what we do with this thought, how we react to it. Do we entertain the thought or do we dismiss the thought? That's our freedom of choice. A person has a freedom of choice either to pursue the thought or to dismiss it. Like someone knocks on your door, someone rings your doorbell. If they're not a welcome guest, you leave the door shut. You know, you answer the buzzer, who's there? I'm not interested, goodbye. So when a negative thought pops into your head, you have a choice. You're the boss, you don't have to let everyone in. Just because it showed up at your doorstep doesn't mean you have to let them in. I don't like your company. You're a negative company, you're a bum. Out of my, out of my house, I'm not letting you in, goodbye. You're not wanted. So you leave the door shut. So the, the thought pops into your mind, but you dismiss it. The moment it pops into your mind, you dismiss it. I don't want to go there. I don't want to think, entertain this thought. There are people, whatever enters their mind, they think about. Whatever, whatever, whatever happens. But the Benini, the Jews, we're talking about a person who's responsible, who's mature, and who does the right thing in thought, speech, and action. So when a negative thought pops into his mind, he immediately dismisses it. Because worry to entertain it, then that's a, a spiritual defect. Then he's doing something wrong. And that we addressed already in the previous chapter. If someone does something wrong, and he's depressed, or he's sad because of his weakness, 
And Alter Rebbe addresses, how do you deal with that sadness? And he says, it's not a time to think about it, not during business and not during prayer. There's a special time set aside. You have to think about your moral defects, your moral challenges, your weaknesses, your vulnerabilities. But here he's not talking about a moral defect. He didn't do anything wrong. Because again, you can't control the thought falling into your mind or not. As Alter Rebbe explained earlier, and this is the foundation of the book, the book of the Tanya is the book of the Benini. The Benini is someone who has not had a core transformation. He's not in charge, not in control of his subconscious. Subconsciously, he is attracted to, towards things that are unhealthy and things that are unwholesome. And you're not in control of it. You are in control of your behavior. Am I going to pursue it? Am I going to act on it? Am I going to think about it? Am I going to speak in it? And that you are completely in control. Just like people, millions of people who successfully have diets, disciplined diets, eat healthy, go against whatever mainstream diet, which is extremely unhealthy, and they avoid the junk food. And it takes tremendous discipline, takes tremendous strength. But it doesn't mean that they're not naturally attracted towards, towards the junk food. You know, the junkier it is, the tastier it is, the more attractive it is. Fat-free, taste-free. <laughs> so, so that's, but nevertheless, they have the presence of mind and they have the strength. They're in touch with themselves. I want to be healthy. I don't want to eat junk food. I don't want to destroy myself. I value my life. <laughs> why, should I eat, why should I junk food myself? They're not depressed. They don't feel worthless. They feel the life is worthy. The life has value. Why should I destroy myself? I feel better if I eat holes. So they have this discipline. They have the presence of mind. God created us. We have the ability of mind over matter. We can control ourselves. We're not animals. We're not creatures of instinct. And there are millions of people who successfully do it. But it's a struggle. It's a conflict. And it doesn't mean that there's been a core transformation that suddenly a delicious ice cream doesn't talk to you, a delicious cream pie doesn't talk to you. Or that, or that a juicy hot dog doesn't talk to you, but you're able to overcome it. <laughs> so there hasn't been a core transformation. So the benini is it, that's out of your control. You can't pretend that it's within your control to change, you shouldn't even be tempted to do something wrong. You're an earthy person, you're a materialistic person. Just like you have junk food, you have junk lifestyle. And we're attracted, the junkier it is, the more attractive it is. And we're attracted to all, all the drunk, uh, drunk lifestyles uh, that life has to offer. So you're human, and you're down to earth, and you're attracted to it. But you have the inner discipline, you have the strength of mind to say, no, I don't want to go that route. I want to speak healthily, and I want to think in a healthy way, and I want to act in a healthy, wholesome way. So it's not in your control that the thought should not enter your mind. What is in your control is what you do once it enters your mind. Because a person, you can't stop thinking. But you can change channels. Instead of thinking negative thoughts, I can change channels. I, I'll instead, I'll fill my mind with positive content. And you'll dismiss that negative thought or that lewd thought. So why is he so depressed? Why is he anxious? He's anxious and depressed for the fact that a negative thought is still disturbing. That it could be after years of discipline, after years of doing the right thing and saying the right thing and thinking the right thing and working so hard, he's still dragged down by these negative thoughts. He still has to struggle with all these negative thoughts. 
And no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, no matter how much Torah you study, no matter how much tzedakah you give, how much kindness and charity you do, no matter what you do, you will still be plagued by these self-doubts and by these thoughts that enter your mind. And that can be very depressing. Because there's nothing I can do to change it. And you would think that after all these years of struggle... I should get a break. And yet, no, here I am, again, struggling with all these negativity and all these negative thoughts. That's what causes him to become depressed. And it seems to be for good reason. In other words, he's not depressed because he doesn't have money or any, any, anything material that's lacking. He's disturbed by the, what's going on inside of him. He's disturbed by this inner... This inner um, that he's being plagued by self-doubt or, 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 or by negative thoughts after all the hard work that he's done. And he knows that this will continue for the rest of his life. Are you saying that with a tzaddik, the thought never enters? Oh, very good. The tzaddik, that's the difference in the tzaddik and the benani. The tzaddik has transformed himself subconsciously. See, he no longer is tempted. He no longer he even has a negative thought. It never even enters his mind. It doesn't, come into his it doesn't even come into his mind. It doesn't even enter his mind. So the because he's no longer tempted. As a matter of fact, he may even be despised. He can't even relate to it anymore. Materialism, ego, it's skin deep. It's superficial. It's the shell. It's empty. There's nothing there. He's not attracted to it. Subconsciously, he has been transformed. He has been changed. He's no longer tempted. He no longer has a Yetzirah. He's no longer tempted to do anything, anything wrong. He has such clarity. To him, it's so crystal clear. Godliness is so crystal clear that anything that's not wholesome or godly is, is, doesn't talk to him. He's not even tempted. And the higher level of the tzaddik, he even despises it and is repulsed by anything that's not godly or holy. But God made him like this. Did he do this himself? Well, God gave, made him with the potential. You're going to learn soon. God gave him the potential to do it but, it, but it's when he exerts himself through his effort, he has the potential to become a tzaddik. Like Einstein is not born Einstein, he's born with the potential to become Einstein. But when Einstein you know, racks his brains, he can turn into an Einstein. We can struggle and bang our heads for a thousand years. We'll never become Einstein. You don't have that potential. Einstein was born without potential. The tzaddik was born without potential to be the tzaddik. He's like a genius, one or two in a generation. A Mozart, you know, you have it in you, you don't have it in you. But if you have it in you, you start to develop that potential. But he has that potential. So the tzaddik has achieved the core transformation. He's no longer tempted. It never even enters his mind. It, does, it no longer speaks to him. Junk no longer speaks to him. Simply, it means it has no hold on him anymore. He's done with that struggle. He's finished. That's very satisfying. For the tzaddik, it's very satisfying. He no longer has to deal with the negativity. He no longer has to struggle, wrestle with it. But you tell the Benini, that's 99.9% of us, you tell them that you have to lead a disciplined life. And even though day in and day out, you're going to be struggling. And you're going to be overcoming and doing the right thing in thought, speech, and action, 24-7, nevertheless, your cat, you will still be plagued by self-doubt. You will still be plagued by negative thoughts. You will still be bombarded. These, these thoughts will still pop into your head uninvited, and you will have to struggle to dismiss it. And that's a very depressing thing. It means I can never overcome this. It's like an end, no peace. It's like an endless battle. You have no, what am I looking forward to? This will never end. <laughs> <laughs>
It's enough to depress you. So how, how do you overcome this sadness? This can cause a tremendous inner sadness, anguish. This can rob a person of his joy. Here you tell a person you have to, what the key ingredient is, you have to march to war. You have to march confident, joyful, confident in your victory. What victory? He's telling me I'm going to fight for the rest of my life. I'll never have peace. So that's a very demoralizing thought. How do you deal with this, this issue? It's a serious issue. If these thoughts occur to him not during his service of God, but while he is occupied with his own affairs and with mundane matters and the like, he should, on the contrary, be happy in his lot. For although these sinful thoughts enter his mind, he averts his attention from them. So he's saying, not only shouldn't he feel sad, actually he should, he should rejoice. <laughs> the exact opposite. Why well, should welcome these thoughts? Why should he rejoice? No, he shouldn't welcome these thoughts. He has to dismiss these thoughts. These thoughts are negative thoughts. Yeah, but he welcomes them because he can overcome them. Ah, you have to rejoice. What's the big simcha? <laughs> What's the big simcha here? So you continue. What's the big joy? It is clear that here we are speaking of one who does not willfully dwell on sinful thoughts. For if he does so, he is a sinner. And the previous chapter has already dealt with sadness arising from sins. Here we're talking about someone who doesn't sin, who does the right thing and dismisses the thoughts. But he's sad from the constant struggle, the constant harassment, the constant struggle. So he's saying not only shouldn't he feel sad, he should actually feel joyful. Why should he feel joyful? Continue. By averting his mind from sinful thoughts, he fulfills the injunction, quote, you shall not follow after your heart and after your eyes by which you go astray, end quote. Only when sinful thoughts enter one's mind can he fulfill this command. For the intention of the verse is not that one be at a level where such thoughts would not occur to him. This is the level of tzaddikim who have eradicated all evil from their hearts. Surely then this verse is not addressed to tzaddikim. The verse refers rather to one who does have such thoughts, and he is commanded to banish them, as the Alter Rebbe continues. The above verse surely does not speak of tzaddikim, referring to them, God forbid, as, quote, going astray, end quote. He says that don't follow. We, we read this in the Shema, the third chapter, in the portion of Titus. We read, the Torah says, a person should not follow his stray thoughts. This goes counterintuitive to what society tells us. Just be natural, follow every thought, every whim, every urge, every instinct, whatever pops into your mind, just follow and just uh, wallow in it. And the Torah says, no, don't follow your thoughts. Don't follow your eyes, which leads to thought. The eye leads to thought, which leads to action. So who is the Torah addressing? The Torah obviously can't be talking about the tzaddik, because the tzaddik doesn't have any negative thoughts. He's not tempted. He doesn't have any temptation. He has no evil inclination. His ego has been completely transformed. He is godly. His being is godly. He's divine. He's only attracted and is only tempted to do godly things. He's inspired. So who can the Torah be speaking to? The Torah is speaking to all the rest of us. 99.9% of us, the Benini, who has temptations. Because it's out of our control. You can't control. And you shouldn't feel guilty about it. A person cannot feel guilty. That we already discussed earlier. A person can feel guilty about having these thoughts pop into your mind. Because it's not in your control. You didn't create yourself. God created us with an ego. He created us as earthy, as earthy human beings. 
And therefore, and therefore, we have temptations. But it's completely out of our control that we have, we have these temptations. And we, you can't feel guilty about it. So th- there's, nothing, it's, it, there's nothing wrong. What the Torah is telling us is once these thoughts enter your mind, don't follow these thoughts. Don't follow these thoughts. Ignore these thoughts. So, what he's addressing here is that the person feels anxious. Not guilty for having these thoughts, but anxious that he's going to have these thoughts for the rest of his life. That these thoughts will constantly bombard him. And he has no remedy. He has no relief. No matter how hard he tries, no matter how hard he struggles, he's never going to win the war. Now that could be a very depressing thought. You know you're never going to win the war. There's never going to be a letter. A war, it's limited, fine, you know, you have a war. It's coming to an end. You mobilize, you see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. This is a lifelong campaign. No relief, no rest, no let up. That could be very depressing, very demoralizing. So he says, not only shouldn't you be depressed or demoralized, you should be joyful. Because by pushing away these thoughts, you're actually fulfilling a mitzvah. You're fulfilling a commandment, a biblical commandment. And that is to push away thoughts. That a person is bombarded with negative thoughts. And yet, you push away these thoughts. Because we are warriors. We are soldiers in Hashem's army, in God's army. We are warriors. We are holy warriors. And that's our mission in life. Our mission in life is to do battle. And to struggle. And to overcome difficulty. And to overcome conflict. That is our mission. That is what life is about. For us, that is our purpose. Our purpose in life. We fulfill our purpose when we overcome a difficulty, when we overcome a struggle. We fulfill the commandment, the biblical commandment, one of the 613 commandments, not to follow your negative thoughts, which could refer to idolatrous thoughts and could also refer to um, immoral thoughts. So every time you turn away from that thought, you're actually fulfilling a mitzvah. You're doing the will of Hashem. A mitzvah is Hashem's wish. You're fulfilling His wish. You're fulfilling His will. You're doing what you were intended to do. That is your mission. That is your purpose. So you, feel, you should feel joyous that you're fulfilling the divine will. You're, you're doing exactly what Hashem expects of you and wants of you and desires of you and get so much pleasure out of it. That should be a comforting thought. That should, be, that should give you joy. So even if you're in the middle of business, you're in the middle of your career, and suddenly you have all these negative thoughts, by pushing it off and realizing that you're fulfilling a mitzvah, you're doing what Hashem wants of you. You're exactly where God wants you to be. You're on the front line. You're a soldier. You're a warrior. You're on the front line. You're fighting for holiness. You're bringing holiness into the world. How do you bring holiness into the world? Every time you overcome a negative desire and urge, and you push away this thought... You bring holiness into the world. You make the world a holy place. So you, you, you are doing exactly what you should be. You should feel joyful about it. You continue. But of Benonim, like himself, in whose mind there do enter erotic thoughts, whether of an innocent nature or otherwise. And when he averts his mind from them, he fulfills this injunction. 
Our sages have said, quote, when one passively refrains from sin, he is rewarded as though he had actively performed a mitzvah, end quote. A mitzvah you fulfill either by acting on the mitzvah, doing something, or by avoiding an act of omission. When? When you're tempted to do a sin. When you're tempted to steal, and you refrain from stealing because God says you should be honest, you're fulfilling a mitzvah. They say a thief who doesn't have the opportunity to steal thinks that he's honest. That's not, that's not a mitzvah. mitzvah is when you have the opportunity, you have the means and you have the opportunity, and yet you say no, because it's a mitzvah, because it's divine, because God says no, you have to be honest. So too, when you have the opportunity to sin, you have the energy and the, and the temptation to sin, and you say no, then you fulfill a mitzvah, even though you're not doing anything, but that's just as a mitzvah as if, as if you did something. Because that takes a lot out of you. The ability to say no takes a lot out of you. As a matter of fact, it's a, it's a much deeper mitzvah than an act of, of commission, an act that you can visibly see. Here, it's very subtle. You don't see anything. It's all internal. But it comes from a much deeper place. The ability to say no. A person's character is defined not so much by what you do, as by what you don't do, by what you won't do. When you dismiss, you say, this I won't do. These are my red lines and I won't cross. That's how, that's how you can tell what a person is all about. Not by how a person expresses himself, self-expression. It's a person's restraint that's much deeper and gives the person a lot more color and character and depth than by what a person does. So when a person is tempted to do a sin, he says, no, I'm not going to do this. That's what built character. That's what tells you about a person. So that's the fulfillment of a mitzvah. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of energy there, a lot of intensity, a lot of depth, a lot of character. A lot of the person goes into that decision. To say no takes tremendous strength to say no. So there's a lot of energy, a very intense energy, a very subtle energy, because on the surface you don't see anything. Nothing happened. But the truth is, that is, that is the, uh, there's a greater presence in the no than there is in the yes. It reminds me of the story of the, uh, the cub reporter. His first assignment, the editor had to leave town. There was this little town, and, and the whole city was talking about the wedding for the last three months. It was a wedding between the mayor's son and the wealthiest, the wealthiest landowner's daughter. And the whole town was talking about the wedding. Family emergency came up. The editor had to leave town. So he assigns this cub reporter to report on this wedding. The next morning, he rushes to the office to see the copy before it goes out. There's no story. There's nothing there. He calls the reporter. He says, what happened? What do you mean there's no story? He says, well, it says uh, nothing happened. What do you mean nothing happened? Weren't you there? He says, yes. I'm telling you, nothing happened. What do you mean nothing happened? He says, oh, the groom never showed up. <laughs> <laughs> nothing happened. And that's the greatest story. <laughs> <laughs> nothing happens when you're tempted to do a sin and nothing happens that's the greatest story that's the, that's so it's a mitzvah you're fulfilling a mitzvah just like you would have physically fulfilled a mitzvah even though you're not doing anything that is the greatest mitzvah okay consequently he should rejoice in his compliance with the injunction just as he does when performing an actual positive precept Thus, not only should the occurrence of these thoughts not grieve him, but it ought to bring him joy, for only thereby is he able to fulfill this commandment.
On the contrary, such sadness is due to conceit, for he does not know his place, and that is why he is distressed, because he has not attained the level of a tzaddik, to whom such foolish thoughts surely do not occur. A person, a person is, could be jealous or be bothered by something that's at least in the realm of possibility. You know, a pauper is not going to feel sad that he's not, he's not, uh, he's not a Rockefeller and that he, he doesn't have a mansion in the Hamptons. You can't be sad about something that's totally out of your realm. Or that he's not living in a palace, or, or that he's not a billionaire, he doesn't have his own private jet. You can't be sad about something that has no connection to you. You know, you're sad that the other person has more than you. I should have been there. So even if a person exaggerates his self-worth, and a person thinks that it has to be within the realm of reality. You can't be jealous about something that has no connection to you. So the fact that he's, the fact that the Benini is so sad and anxious, and feels dejected by the fact that he's tempted. He's tempted. He has these thoughts that trouble him, these negative thoughts that he has to struggle with, that he has to dismiss. What does that tell us about him? That means that he's totally delusional, that he doesn't know his place. Of course he knows he's not a tzaddik. The proof is that he still has these temptations. A tzaddik doesn't have temptations. He knows he's not a tzaddik. But he feels bad about the fact that he's not a tzaddik. That means he feels that he should have been a tzaddik that he's on such a high level as a result of all his struggle and his effort and all the mitzvot and the Torah that he's done, his discipline, that he's on a level he should have been on the level of the Tzad. And therefore he shouldn't even, even have been tempted to do something wrong or to think something wrong. So that, that shows that the person is completely delusional. He doesn't know his place because he's so far from the Tzad. There's no connection to him and the Tzad. The distance between... 99.9% of us in the tzaddik. The tzaddik is almost like a, he's like a different realm. He's like a spiritual superman. He's a different, made up of a different cloth. He's made up of a different substance. He has no yetzahara. He has transformed the subconscious. Constantly inspired. Constantly in touch. Everything is so crystal clear. Godliness is so crystal clear to him. And that's what he breathes, and that's what he sleeps, and that's what he eats, and that's his being. His being is godly. Not only he acts godly, he acts wholesome. His whole being is godly. So the person is so delusional. He doesn't even know. He's so far from that level. Because the Benini is not on that level. Yes, deep down, at our very core and essence, we have a spark of Hashem. We have a divine essence, divine spark inside of us. And we have the freedom of choice to behave in a godly way. At all times, 24-7. To always tell the truth, speak the truth, act morally, act ethically, act spiritually, act in a wholesome way, consistently. Thought, speech, and action. That's entirely in our control. But what happens on the conscious level, where we feel that that's that's not in our control, that we shouldn't even be tempted to do the wrong thing, we shouldn't even be attracted to materialism. Externals, money, power, fame shouldn't even speak to us. That's, that's simply not in our control. So for a person to feel bad about these thoughts that enter into his mind is someone who's completely delusional. He has no idea, no clue of where he's at. And he's so exaggerated, he's so overestimated 
his state, his status, his level, that he feels sad about something that's, that's totally beyond him. Because we shouldn't expect it of ourselves. We have to be realistic about who we are, to be realistic about our limitations and about our capabilities. We are human. We are flesh and blood. We are finite. We are earthy. Earthiness pulls. The force of gravity, it pulls us down. We're attracted to materialism. We're attracted to junk food and we're attracted to junk lifestyle. And the junkier it is, the more attractive it is to us. We're flesh and blood. We're human. And it's not in our control. We can't change that. We could change. What is in our control is how we respond. Are we going to follow these urges and instincts or are we going to dismiss them? Are we going to lock the door, shut the door and shut them out? That's our choice. But you can't control that part and you can't feel bad about these thoughts, about that part of us not not being in our control. And if you do feel bad, it comes from arrogance. Gaiva, gaiva. Pure arrogance. You completely overestimate yourself. You're completely delusional about yourself. You completely have no sense of reality where you're at. Halavai. Halavai. We wish. You should be a Benini. Halavai, we could be a Benini. Who's always doing the right thing. But to be a Tzaddik, you're talking about King David. You're talking, talking about Moses. You're talking about Abraham. You're talking about Maimonides. You're talking about the Balshemta. You're talking about the Lubavitcher Rebbe. You're talking about. One or two in a generation. You're talking about someone who's in a different level, different caliber altogether. Elijah the prophet. Rabbi Shimon Bayechoi. Rabbi Isaac Luria, Darizal. I mean, whom, whom are you kidding? You're, you're sad. You're not like Isaac Luria. It's like, it's like a pauper. He's sad that he's not, he's not Bill Gates, that he doesn't have $50 billion in the bank. I mean, there's, there's no connection. What, what, are you, what are you sad about? Get real. What are you sad about? There's no connection. There's no relation at all. You're not even close. You're so distant. You can be jealous of someone who's a little better than you, but someone in your realm, in your frame, in your... has to be in the ballpark. You can't be sad about something, you know, I'm not a king, I'm not a queen, I'm not a prince, I'm not a princess. I mean, what... What are you sad about? Why should you? Why shouldn't you be tempted? Why shouldn't you have these thoughts fall into your, into your mind? You're human. Like 99.9% of everyone else. Why are you different than anyone else? No matter how much Torah you learn, no matter how many mitzvot you do, you can go to synagogue for 100 years. You can't achieve a core transformation. It's not within our realm. It's not within our power. God did not give us that power. You can't transform yourself on the subconscious level. You could transform yourself on your behavior level. And that, and that we are expected to change and that we are held responsible It's like the Torah tells us that the, uh, the Ark, the holiest, the holiest uh, piece of furniture in the Temple, in the Holy of Holies, the Ark that contained the tablets, was made of three layers, like a box within a box within a box. The outer box was gold, the, in the middle box was wood, and the, outer bo- and the, and the inner box was gold. And then the gold cover covered it. So it was covered on all sides from gold, from within and from without. But the center was wood. Wood, gold is solid. It's pure gold, gold. Wood, wood can rot. So the Torah is describing all of us. The Torah is describing us. 
at the very core and essence, you have gold. Deep, deep down, you have gold. You have a piece of the divine, you have a divine spark inside it. Pure gold. God is divine. God is infinite. God is gold. Externally, it's in our control. We can, our behavior can be gold, solid gold. Pure, wholesome, wonderful. There's nothing in the world that's stopping us from leading a disciplined life, a wholesome life, just like you have a disciplined diet, you have a spiritual disciplined diet, and you lead a wholesome life, a satisfying life, a fulfilling life, a healthy life, in thought, speech, and action, 24-7 consistently. There's nothing in the world stopping you. Of course, it's easier just to go down the road of junk food and just to conform like most people do, but you have total freedom of choice to make a choice. I don't have to go down that road. I don't have to live that type of life. I don't have to live a junk lifestyle. I can lead a wholesome lifestyle. But then you have in the middle, in the center, you have, you have your conscious self and you have all these thoughts bombarding you and you have these temptations and you have these weaknesses and you, have, you feel very human, like wood that could rot. So a person can feel bad and anxious and sad. Look at me. Look at the rotten side of me. I have all these rotten, unhealthy, unwholesome... Uh, urges and instincts and self-destructive instincts and urges and, and have these ugly thoughts bombarding me and negative thoughts bombarding me and self-destructive thoughts and, and, I'm being, and I'm plagued with it and you feel terrible about yourself. Something is wrong with me. So the Torah says, no, you're still a holy ark. As long as your behavior, as long as your behavior is solid, gold, Wholesome, healthy. And you do exactly what the Torah expects of us. You follow the Torah and you lead a Jewish life. And you think like a Jew, speak like a Jew, and act like a Jew. Solid gold. And that behavior reflects the inner core, the inner essence, the gold that's deep down inside. Our divine spark. Then it doesn't matter that in the middle you have wood. You have this all-too-human self that you can't control. And you're not a failure, God forbid. Not only aren't you a failure, but you're actually fulfilling a mitzvah. You're doing God's will. And you're giving God immense pleasure. And that's who we are. You are on the front line. You are fighting the war, the battle for holiness. By overcoming those urges and overcoming those instincts and dismissing those thoughts, you are actually bringing holiness into this world. And that's your destiny. That's your life's mission for, for 120 years. You're not leaving the battlefield. Until you breathe your last, you are on the battlefield and you are on the front line. And that's your holy mission. So don't feel sad. I'm the country. Feel joyful. I'm doing what I'm meant to be doing. I'm fulfilling the purpose of my creation, of my being. So a person shouldn't feel sad or bad that you have all these ugly neg- negative negativity inside of you and it's plaguing you. And you have self-doubt and you have all this negativity att- attacking you. As long as you don't allow them in, as long as you dismiss them and you do the right thing, on the contrary, you're actually fulfilling a mitzvah. Every time you dismiss it, you're doing something tremendous. You're fulfilling a mitzvah. You're doing the divine will. Something tremendously good is happening every time you dismiss this negative, this temptation, this urge, this instinct. 
he continued, for were he to recognize his station, that he is very far from the rank of Tzaddik, and would that he be a Benoni and not a Russia, for even a single moment throughout his life, i.e., this is what he should be striving for at present, rather than vainly desiring to be a Tzaddik, then surely this is the due measure of the Benonim and their task, to subdue the evil impulse and the thought that rises from the heart to the mind, and to completely avert his mind from it, repulsing it, as it were, with both hands, as explained in chapter 12. The Alter Rebbe explained there that the evil in the soul of the Benoni remains vigorous. His task is to prevent it from expressing itself in thought, speech, and action. Thus, he has no control over the occurrence of evil thoughts in his mind, but only over his acceptance or rejection of these thoughts. With every repulsion of this thought from his mind, the Sitra Achra is suppressed here below in this world. And since, quote, the arousal from below, in our case the initiative of the Benoni in suppressing the Sitra Achra, produces a corresponding arousal above, end quote. The Sitra Achra above in the supernal worlds the root of the sitra achra of this world, which soars like an eagle, is also suppressed. Thus realizing the verse, quote, Though you soar aloft like the eagle, I will yet bring you down from there, says God. End quote. Every time that you push away this lewd thought or negative thought or self-doubt, a critical self-doubt, you're actually fulfilling the will of Hashem. And you're accomplishing something tremendous. Because every time you suppress, you suppress your urge and your instinct, your negative urge or instinct, you evoke a response from above. Because our God is interactive. And whatever we do, we affect a tremendous response above as the analogy that the Rebbe gives elsewhere, that on the sundial, the sun goes millions of miles and it registers, and the sundial will register just a tiny movement. A tiny movement on the sundial means that in heaven the sun moves millions of miles. And the reverse is also true. The tiniest movement, the slightest movement that we make in this world, you overcame a, a negative thought. You overcame a lewd thought, a negative thought. You dismissed it. You had the strength. You had the courage. You had the discipline. You dismissed it. You locked the door. I'm not interested. You're not invited in my home. You're not welcome in my home. This thought pops into your head, and immediately, as soon as it pops into your head, you dismiss it. I'm not going that route. Switch channels. I'll think something different. At that moment, that slight movement, that slight suppression, that slight overcoming, your, that negativity achieves and accomplishes something so powerful and on high, above, in heaven. It evokes within God a similar response. That just like you overcame your negativity, so too, we are the microcosm. What happens on the microcosm also happens on the macrocosm. Just like there's darkness within us, and you were able to overcome that darkness, you were able to overcome that negativity, so too on a global scale, God, so to speak, suppresses the negativity, the global negativity that's out there in the world. And the global impurity, a global negativity. 
that God suppresses it as a result of our suppressing our overcoming our negativity by being strong this causes God to do the same on a grand global scale that God suppresses the forces of evil the negative energies in this world and the forces of evil in this world and he suppresses it and subdues it all of a result of our internally suppressing our own negativity drives and urges and instincts and doing the right thing so this is a mitzvah we're doing the will of Hashem we're giving Hashem tremendous nachas tremendous pleasure every time we have the strength to overcome our weakness our human weakness and we're able to do the right thing this gives Hashem tremendous pleasure and this so to speak strengthens Hashem and gives Hashem the strength so to speak to overcome the forces of arrogance and chutzpah and, and, and ego and negativity and, and darkness that's out there as the verse says that the, uh, the sign of klipa of negativity is that it's chutzpah they soar aloft like an eagle they're very arrogant arrogant completely inflate their self-worth completely inflate their self-value arrogant to the point of an extreme think they're in charge and they're in power and they're in control and they can get away with murder and they can do whatever they want and Hashem hates that arrogance but when we are able to overcome the negativity inside of us every time we bombarded with a thought with a negative thought we have the strength to overcome that thought and to dismiss it then Hashem this evokes a powerful response and high, and high, above, that Hashem also suppresses and overcomes all the negativity, and suppresses that arrogance, and brings down, shoots down that arrogance, and that ego, and that inflated, um, and that darkness. And the world becomes a better place, as a reason. Holier place. So, this is a mitzvah. That's why it's a mitzvah. Hashem tells us, you will be bombarded with these negative words. But you are on the front line. You are fighting. You are fighting for holiness. And by you overcoming the negativity, you bring holiness into the world. You suppress the forces of darkness and you bring holiness into the world. Because whatever happens in the world is just a reflection of what's going on in our own inner heart. That's the power that we have. The slightest movement, even the slightest movement forward, has infinite repercussions. Only God who's infinite could have truly appreciate the power and the effect of even the slightest movement forward to the positive. In the times of Alter Rebbe, there was a there was a Jew, and um, he grew up. He grew up in the straight and narrow, and then he lost his way. And he became the playboy of the town, and the Hasidim tried to, uh, tried to draw him near, tried to bring him closer to his roots, and to, you know, to bring him back home. And uh, after years of trying, they didn't see any effect. Like, you know, he was still going about his merry ways. And they were a little discouraged, so they asked Alter Rebbe, maybe they're just wasting their time. Because as much as they try, as hard as they try, 
You don't see any, any effect on him. There's no improvement, there's no change, there's no, you know, as much as they love him and they're trying to bring him closer, but Dr. Rebbe told him, he says, you can't imagine the effect if as a result of you drawing him closer with love, instead of thinking ten negative thoughts a day, he only thinks nine negative thoughts a day. But as a result of you drawing him near, you cause him from ten, you brought him down to nine. You can't imagine the infinite pleasure that that gives to Hashem. That one time that he had the strength to overcome <laughs> the tenth temptation, he didn't have the first nine. This, the, what that accomplishes above and the pleasure that God receives above is indescribable. You can't, you can't quantify it. That's how powerful it is. Every time we make the slightest movement, slightest improvement, we overcome a negativity, a negative thought, a negative uh, speech, a negative action, that we have an urge, an instinct, and we're able to overcome it, it it's indescribable. Pleasure that it gives to God and the amount of holiness that it brings into this world is indescribable. Continue. Indeed, the Zohar in Parshat Truma, page 128, extols the divine satisfaction that occurs when the Sitra Achra is subdued here below. For, quote, thereby God's glory rises above all, more than by any other praise, and this ascent is greater than all else, etc. End quote. Thus, it is the evil thoughts which enter the mind of the Benoni that enable him to fulfill God's command in averting his attention from them, thereby subduing the Sitra Achra. So it's only through suppressing that in a certain sense you're able to evoke a greater revelation of godliness, a very intense revelation of godliness. He says Hashem's praise and the ascent, Hashem's glory, rises above all, more than any other praise. And this ascent is greater than all else. Because in a certain sense, what he's saying here is that the Benini should not feel like a second-class citizen. The tzaddik, that's the first-class citizen. He has the ability to totally transform himself. He has the ability, he's no longer tempted. There's been a core transformation. But I'm still human. No matter how much I struggle, no matter how hard I try, I remain human and still plague myself down and still plague with all my rotten urges and instincts that drag me down and pull me down and so difficult. You're not a second-class citizen. Because in a certain sense, what you accomplish through your struggle, in a certain sense, is greater than what the tzaddik accomplished. Because the pleasure that it gives God is, is indescribable. Because you are nullifying yourself before God. Who is nullifying himself more before God? The Benini or the Tzadik? The one who transforms himself? Who has the ability to completely transform himself? Or the one who nullifies himself before God, overcomes this powerful urge, this tempting urge, this tempting, instinctual, powerful pull to negativity, and he overcomes it, only because it's the wrong thing to do, because God told us. Who, in a certain sense, who is more nullified before God? Who is closer to Hashem? 
the nullification, the benini, his nullification is much deeper. Because the tzaddik has transformed himself. So the tzaddik, in a certain sense, that's, it's, his serving God now becomes pleasurable to him. It's his pleasure. And a person, no matter how great you are, is finite, is limited. So even the tzaddik, the greatest tzaddik, the most refined, the most sublime human being is still finite, still limited. So his connection to God is also limited. Versus the Benindi, it's not that he finds it pleasurable. He's struggling, he's wrestling, it's so difficult. He does it, he breaks himself, he overcomes himself, he suppresses his desire only for the sake of God. So his connection to God in a certain sense is unlimited. Because he's just, he's just bowing down to God. Listen, God, you don't want me, this is wrong, I don't, I'm tempted to do it, I know it's wrong, you told me it's wrong, so for your sake I'm not doing it. His connection to God is unlimited. In a certain sense, it's much deeper than the tzaddik's connection to God. Because the tzaddik's connection to God is more out of love. He has transformed himself. He finds a pleasure. His pleasure is godly things. He's now attracted to godliness. So it's become part of his being. And therefore, just like he is limited, his connection, his understanding of God is also limited. The Benini is going beyond his limits. The Benini is surpassing himself. He naturally has an urge, has an instinct, wants to do this. But he's overcoming that nature, he's overcoming that thought, that temptation, only for the sake of God. So his devotion to God is unlimited. It's almost like a difference between a child and an an adult. On one hand, right, the child doesn't understand things. An adult comprehends, has a very mature relationship to the subject matter. Children, a child is a child. A child doesn't truly comprehend. But at the end of the day, who can learn more? The child or the adult? The child. Children are like sponges. They absorb like infinite amount of information. It's amazing how much information you absorb. And then when you grow up, your mind shuts down. (laughs) And you stop learning. Because you're mature, because you're an adult, so your mind becomes very rigid. And whatever fits into your knowledge, you accept. And whatever, you're not open. A child, because a child knows nothing, a child is like a sponge. It's open to everything. It's like a child is like in a, in a hypnotic state. The first six years of a child, we absorb so much massive amounts of information. And, and then we start shutting down. So precisely because he's a child, he's not limited. So therefore he's open to everything. He doesn't have any first impressions, doesn't have any, any prejudicial impressions. And therefore he's open to everything. And therefore he can absorb so much more than an adult so on one hand, the tzaddik is mature. His relationship to God is mature. He's transformed himself. He understands. But in a certain sense, that's limited. While the benini, the innocence of the benini, that purity, in a certain sense, the nullification of the benini to God is so much purer. It's so much deeper. Qualitatively wise, it's so much deeper than the nullification of the tzaddik to God. Because it's unlimited. He's giving of himself totally. He doesn't want to do it. It goes against his nature. He's tempted. He has these urges, that, these thoughts that pop into his mind. He's very tempted to follow these thoughts. And yet he overcomes. Only because, for God's sake, no other reason. So his dedication to God is infinite. And that gives God infinite pleasure. 
So the, the, the revelation of Hashem, the praise of Hashem that results, every time you overcome a loot thought, a negative thought, every time you do the right thing and you think wholesome, and you speak wholesome, you act wholesome, and you overcome your urge and your nature and your instinct, it, it gives God such indescribable pleasure, infinite pleasure, the slightest move. And it's so much deeper, the revelation that results from it is so profound and so deep. So there's something very precious about this type of service of God, of overcoming your nature, overcoming your urge, overcoming your instinct, giving yourself in a certain sense totally to God with, without any limit. Because it's beyond your understanding. You're, you're overcoming yourself, you're breaking yourself, you're, you're going beyond yourself. And that's an infinite, that's a, de- a dedication to God that's, that's beyond any limit. And you're connecting to God Himself. And, the, and you evoke that level of response within God. There's an intense revelation of godliness in this world as a result of your action. Every time you overcome something negative, you draw down into this world an intense revelation of godliness from the very deepest essence of God. Just like you, God responds in kind. God is interactive. Just like you connected to God in an infinite way because you went totally beyond yourself. You suppressed, you overcame your negativity, your negative urge. So too, God responds in kind. That is an infinite revelation of God Himself without any limit in this world. So the level of holiness that's, that you draw down into this world, the, the, the pleasure that you've given to God is so indescribable. The repercussion of your act is so indescribable. You've transformed, you've made this world into such a better place as a result of your struggle, as a result of your conflict, as a result of you suppressing your negative urge, negative intent. And this happens each and every time you have to overcome that struggle. So as he's about to say, yes, that's your life's mission. Don't feel sad. There's nothing to feel sad about. What are you feeling sad about? You're not a second class citizen. That's your mission in life. That's your purpose. You have the ability that the tzaddik doesn't have. In a certain sense, you can accomplish something a tzaddik cannot accomplish. It's not like you're second rate and second class because you're not up to par. What you can accomplish, the tzaddik cannot accomplish. As we say in the ethics of our fathers, he says, make your will like God's will so that God should make His will like your will. In other words, even though your will is not God's will, you would rather be doing something else. But you know that this is God's will. So force yourself, force yourself to make your will like God's will. Do what God wants of you. Suppress your will before God's will. You're tempted, you're urged, you have an urge to do the wrong thing, or to think the wrong thing, or to say the wrong thing. But you know that this is not the will of God. God wants you to act in a wholesome way, in a, in a, in a proper way. So suppress your urge and your instinct and your will before God's will. And then God will suppress His will before you. But then there's another, then He continues, nullify your will before God's will. So that God will nullify His will before you. That's the level of the tzaddik. The tzaddik has completely transformed His will. That not only He does the right thing, he, he, or He doesn't do the wrong thing, He's not even tempted to do the wrong thing. He has transformed His will. That's the level of the tzaddik. That's one approach to God. And, of course, we understand the advantages of that approach. But also realize the advantages of the previous approach. 99.9% of us. It's a mitzvah. We're fulfilling a mitzvah. This is the divine will. It's not by accident that we are this way. That we don't have the power to change our subconscious. We don't have the power 
to change it. We shouldn't even be tempted. God created us this way. And that is because we're fulfilling a mitzvah. We're fulfilling His will. That is, our, that is His will. That is the purpose. Because what we accomplish, every time we overcome a negativity, overcome the darkness, it's so powerful. It's indescribable. That's the superiority of a human being over an angel. Angels don't have to deal with negativity. And that's why they can't really accomplish much. A human being, because we have to deal with darkness, because we have to overcome negativity, and all these handicaps, and these thoughts that are constantly popping into our mind, and constantly being bombarded, every time we overcome this struggle, it has such an impact on the entire universe, on the higher realms, the higher levels of consciousness, the upper realms, and in this world. We evoke such a powerful response from Hashem. An infinite response. We unleash something infinite every time we overcome a negativity. The slightest movement. So when you realize it, not only aren't you sad, and you don't feel sad about your lot, that you're, 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 you're condemned to constantly struggle for the rest of your life, you should be joyful. That is your mission. You are on the front line. God entrusted you with such a powerful mission. And you have what it takes. And every time this thought enters into your mind, even in the middle of your business day, and you dismiss this negative thought, you're fulfilling a mitzvah, you're doing the divine will, you're evoking this powerful response, you're giving God this infinite pleasure. Every time you restrain, every time you overcome, every time you, you hold back from doing something wrong. So the answer is not to surrender to your urges and your instincts. And the answer is not to... to... Uh, begrudge the fact that you have to overcome it, but you should do it with joy. You should realize what you're accomplishing and appreciate what you're accomplishing and appreciate what you're doing and do, do it wholeheartedly and joyfully that, that this is your life, this is your mission. You were given such a, such a powerful mission and you can accomplish something unbelievable, indescribable every time you overcome a negative thought. So thank God I have this opportunity. Look at it as an opportunity, not as a burden as an opportunity, as a blessing. And that will get rid of your sadness. Dave, you want to continue? Therefore, one should not feel depressed or very troubled at heart. He ought to be somewhat troubled by the occurrence of these thoughts. Otherwise, he may become indifferent to them and will cease to wage war against them. But he ought not to be sorely troubled by them. As Alter Rabbi says, you shouldn't feel too troubled. If a person says it doesn't bother me that I have all these negative thoughts, that, mean, that can only mean that he's indifferent. That, yeah, who cares? So what? It should bother you. It should trouble you. Because these are very unhealthy and unwholesome thoughts. But it shouldn't trouble you too much. It was put into perspective. Yes, these are negative, and you're disgusted by it, and you're not happy about it. But realize what it's all about, what the purpose is. And look at it as an opportunity, continue even if he be engaged all his days in this conflict with the thoughts which will always enter his mind. Though he may never rise to the level which precludes their occurrence, yet he should not be depressed. For perhaps this is what he was created for, and this is the service demanded of him, to subdue the Sitra Achra constantly. Concerning this, Job said to God, quote, You have created wicked men, end quote as though it were preordained that one man be wicked and another righteous. In the first chapter, the Alter Rebbe pointed out that this is contradicted by the statement in the Gemara that before a child is born, God decrees whether he shall be wise or foolish, strong or weak, and so on. 
but does not determine whether he will be righteous or wicked, this is left to one's own choice. The meaning of Job's statement becomes clear, however, in light of the above discussion. True, God does not ordain whether man will act wickedly, but he does, quote, create wicked men, end quote, in the sense that their minds work like the mind of the Russia, with evil thoughts constantly occurring to them. God created them in this way so that they will engage in battle with these thoughts and thereby subjugate the Sitra Akhra, as the Alter Rebbe now goes on to say. So he's saying that really, really there are two categories. What concerns us is that there are two categories. There's the tzaddik and there's the rasha. The tzaddik is someone who no longer has a yetzahara, is no longer tempted to do anything wrong, who has achieved a core transformation. The rasha is one who does not have the ability to change himself that he shouldn't even be tempted to do something wrong. He should only be tempted to do something right. It's simply not in his control. The only difference between the Benini and the Rasha is that the Benini doesn't act on these temptations. He dismisses these temptations. He overcomes these temptations. He is tempted. He has these urges. He has these instincts. But when it comes to action, he does the right thing. Despite these urges, despite these instincts, he overcomes them. Despite these being bombarded with these thoughts, he dismisses them. He's in control. He has discipline. He has strength. And he does the right thing. The Russia is one who not only has these urges, there's nothing wrong with having these urges. You can't help yourself. You're human. But acts on it. Dwells on it. These thoughts pop into his head and he continues entertaining these thoughts. He lets them in the door. And then he speaks. He says things he shouldn't say. Slander, lies, etc. And acts and does things that he shouldn't do. That's the difference between the Benini and the Russia. But at the core, the Russia is the Russia and the Tzaddik. So even the Benini, internally, is like the Russia. He has these temptations, and he can't help himself. He doesn't act on them. So that's what Eve means. Job means a person has freedom of choice, means a person has a choice over his actions, his behavior. Are you going to allow these urges and instincts to... to uh, are you going to carry them out? Or... You won't allow them to express themselves through your thought, speech, and action. You'll suppress them. You'll overcome them. You'll overcome the struggle. That's your choice. God does not decree when you're born you're going to be a tzaddik, going to be a rush. That's your choice. But what God does decree, and what is, what is not your choice is, that whether you're a tzaddik, you have the ability, the potential to change, transform yourself completely, or not. A rasha means that you're destined, and that's 99.9% of us are destined to always struggle. We don't have the power to change on that level. That we shouldn't even be urged, we shouldn't even be tempted to do something wrong. So in that sense, he's a rasha. So he says he's like the rasha in the sense that you'll always have temptations. And that's not in our power. The moment we were born, we were destined to that life. So God chose two paths for us. There's the soul of the tzaddik. You're born a tzaddik. Like Einstein was born with the potential to be Einstein. There's the tzaddik. He was born with the potential. He's, he's that spiritual genius. He was born with the potential to become a tzaddik. To achieve that core transformation. Even on the subconscious level. They shouldn't even be tempted to do anything wrong. And then there's the path of the rest of us. The rest of our souls were destined to be like the Russia. 
in the sense that we will always have that, that temptation. And that's not in our control. So that's what Job meant. Job is not contradicting the core belief in Judaism that a person has freedom of choice. They were not puppets. Many great people did not believe in freedom of choice. Einstein did not believe in freedom of choice. But this is a, an essential principle in Judaism, that a person has freedom of choice. It's one of the 13 principles of faith, and God rewards and punishes. If there's no freedom of choice, there's no meaning to reward and punish. We are not puppets. We have freedom of choice. Because Einstein, Einstein wasn't aware of quantum mechanics. Now we know how the, the random unpredictab- unpredictability of reality, when you go deep down to reality, it's totally unpredictable. Now, random is unpredictable. So life is unpredictable. We have freedom of choice. That's part of the equation. And that's genuine. And that's, that's part of the dynamic of life. We definitely have freedom of choice. The way, the, way we, the way we act and the way we behave. We're not puppets. God is not pulling our strings. God forbid. When it comes to moral issues, we have freedom of choice. When it comes to external issues, we have no freedom of choice. God runs this world and He's in control. You're not going to earn one penny more, one cent more than God has, has decided in Rosh Hashanah. But when it comes to morality and ethics, that's the one area in our life we have freedom of choice. And how ironic that people spend all their life pursuing the one area in their life that have zero freedom of choice. The one area in your life that you have freedom of choice, which is your, your character, your personality, your morality, your ethics, you have no time for it. I have no time to come to Shul to Davin. I have no time to study Torah. I'm too busy working. The one area in your life which, no matter how hard you work, you're not going to earn one penny more than is destined to. So you spend all your time and all your energy on the one area in your life which you cannot affect, not, not by one iota. The one area in your life which you're in totally control over, and it's totally up to us, that's the one area in your life which we completely neglect because we're so exhausted. I don't have time, I don't have energy, I don't have strength. I'm too busy. That's the foolishness, that's the irony of life. But this is an essential belief in Judaism that we have freedom of choice. So Job couldn't have meant that you created a Russia, as if it's destined that this person is going to be evil. What he means is you created a person whose soul is destined to struggle, like the Russia. But does it mean you have to be a Russia? Absolutely not. At any time, at all times, all places, you have the ability to overcome your desire, your urge, your instinct. You have, you have the ability to suppress that urge and instinct, and you can do the right thing. You can think the right thing, you can speak the right thing, and you can do the right thing at all times, at all places, consistently, 24-7. Continue. The implication of Job's statement is not that they were created to actually be wicked, God forbid, i.e. sinful in thought, speech, and action, but that there should occur to them in their thoughts and musings alone that which occurs to the wicked, i.e. that evil thoughts should enter their mind as they do in the mind of the wicked, and they shall eternally wage war to avert their minds from them in order to subjugate the Sitra Ahra yet they will never be able to annihilate the Sitra Akhra in their souls completely, for this is accomplished by Tzadikim. A Tzadik subjugates his animal soul to such a degree that it is unable to arouse temptation in his heart. His mind is therefore untroubled by evil thoughts. Those, however, of whom Job said that they were, quote, created wicked, end quote, cannot rise to this level. It is always possible for evil thoughts to enter their minds. 
Their task is not to give them free reign. So we are destined to struggle. We will always struggle. Life is a struggle until our last breath. We are destined to struggle. That's our lot in life. That's our mission in life. It's not we have to resign to it and just get used to it because it won't make it, the complaining is not going to make any difference. <laughs> That's our destiny. But we actually should rejoice in our lot. That's what he said here. He said, we should rejoice in your lot because it gives you the opportunity to fulfill a mitzvah. An opportunity that the tzaddik does not have. The tzaddik cannot fulfill the mitzvah of The tzaddik is not tempted. He doesn't have this mitzvah. He does not have this opportunity. He cannot fulfill the divine will. He cannot fulfill this holy mission. It's not a mission for him. He's the general. The soldier is in the front line. The warrior. The holy warrior. The divine warrior who's bringing holiness into this world. That is his mission. And you're fulfilling the divine will, and you're giving God infinite pleasure, and you're fulfilling the purpose of creation. So rejoice in your lot. March into battle with a march of victory. Be enthusiastic. Be joyful. Be excited. How fortunate is your lot that you have the ability to touch God in such a deep way. In such a personal way. Because in a certain sense, when you make that choice, and you choose to do the right thing, it's so personal. A person's ability, and this is what distinguishes man from all other creatures, we're the only creature in the universe that we have the choice to go contrary to our nature. Animals can't do anything against their nature. They're programmed. Angels can't do anything beyond their nature. In a certain sense, the tzaddik's love for God is also natural. He has transformed his nature, so that's natural. So he's following his nature. Where do you see a person's ability of freedom of choice, which comes directly from the divine? Only God has freedom of choice. It's a, it's a human ability, that, a divine ability that God gave us to overcome our nature, to do something personal, to, go, to do something that goes contrary to your nature. That's such a personal choice. When you make a choice to do something that goes against your nature, It's so personal. It's so real. That's when you see how real a person is, that a person is divine. When a person just follows his nature, he's programmed. There's nothing divine there. When you overcome your nature, now you're touching the divine. Now you're expressing the divine spark inside of you. And you're touching the essence of the divine. And you're evoking such a powerful response because what what it boils down to at the end of the day What's this universe? It's, it's a person to person, between you and God. The whole bureaucracy of the universe all falls by the wayside. All there is is you and God. There's nothing else. It's a person. It's intimate. It's a relationship. There's nothing else. It's like a husband and wife, and there's, there's nothing else. The whole world dissolves. Nothing else exists, just the two of you. When you make that choice, that's the most intimate thing you can do with God. Because it's so personal. You're overcoming your nature. It's a choice that you're making. And it's you and God, nothing else. The whole universe falls by the wayside, nothing exists. And that's what he says, that God's glory, the praise, the revelation of God that's evoked as a result of your personal choice of having the ability to overcome and dismissing that blue thought. It touches God so intimately and so personally. And that's an opportunity that tzaddik doesn't have, simply doesn't have. 
So you have an advantage over the tzaddik. You can accomplish something that tzaddik cannot accomplish. You can give God certain pleasures that the tzaddik cannot give. So don't feel sorry for yourself. Don't feel... Uh, you're not a victim. Don't feel sorry. It's a mitzvah. It's an opportunity. It's a myth. It's a, a joy. And when you tackle life with that joy and that zest and that enthusiasm and that joie de vivre and that happiness of heart, then that's, that's an essential ingredient to be able to overcome, to be able to face all the challenges that you have. When you have a clear heart and you're joyful and you're positive and you're optimistic and you're hopeful and you're, you're confident and you feel good about yourself and feel good about life. That's what he says. Don't feel too bad. You should feel a little bad. <laughs> if you're so comfortable and you're so satisfied with your negativity and the, and the, the negativity inside of us, that's not good. You should, you should always feel a little uncomfortable. But don't feel too bad. Realize, realize what's happening. Realize what's going on here. Realize the opportunity that was handed to us. And next week we'll continue and he'll describe how there are two paths to Hashem. Hashem has two paths and they're both equal. In Hashem's eyes, they're both equal. One is the path of the tzaddik, and that gives God, of course, infinite pleasure. But then there's the path of the benin, that in a certain sense gives God even greater pleasure. And the, the nullification of the benin is, is, is much greater than the nullification of the tzaddik. And it, it touches God in a much more personal place, in a certain sense then the level of the tzaddik. So you have to realize your advantages also. <laughs> in, in God's world, there's no hierarchy. You're at the bottom of the totem pole. You're on top of the totem pole. You have, to, you have to get beyond that whole way of thinking. There's no bottom and there's no top. Each one has a unique path to God. Each one has a precious path to God, a special path to God. Each one can accomplish something that the other one cannot accomplish. And each one needs the other one. And that's why we say, it says the difference in the exodus from Egypt and the ultimate redemption, which we're all anticipating imminently, the coming of Mashiach, is that the Jewish people had to escape from Egypt. They had to run away from Egypt. Why do they have to run away from Egypt? As we learned earlier, why do they have to run away from Egypt? unconditional surrender. They could have kicked the Egyptians out and, and taken over Egypt. <laughs> they could have stayed in Egypt. Why, why run? Where were they running from? They won the war. Paro came running in the middle of the night in his pajamas. Please, whatever you want. It's unconditional surrender. It's like Nazi German, unconditional surrender. You could have taken over the country. You could have done whatever you want. Who were the Jews running from? They ran away because they couldn't cope. They couldn't deal with the Egypt. They couldn't deal with it. It's like they had to run away from the Egypt inside of them. It's like someone who's addicted. He has to run away from the bar. He can't, be around. he can't handle it. They have to run away. They couldn't handle that environment. They didn't have the strength. So they have to run away. So the exodus from Egypt represents what we're discussing here, the Benini, suppression. God had to crush the Egyptians. He had to destroy Egypt. The arrogance, the ten plagues. He had to destroy them and crush them from the door. And that enabled the Jews to run. They had to run. They couldn't handle it. 
So this is when the evil is still very much present and very powerful. And the hold that evil has in you is very powerful. All you can do is suppress it and run away because you can't deal with it. So they escaped, but they couldn't transform Egypt. All they had the ability was to suppress. The ultimate redemption, however, there will not be suppression. No one is going to run. They're going to go in a very relaxed way. Why? Because there's going to be a transformation. The world will be transformed. The world will become a holy place, an enlightened place, a godly place, a good place. Not only the Jewish people, the whole entire world. All 70 nations, 6 billion people will come to acknowledge God and to recognize the sovereignty of God and willingly enter into a relationship with God and become righteous Gentiles and follow the seven Noahide laws and become moral, ethical, and spiritual. A world filled with integrity. Imagine a world, a world without poverty, a world uh, 100% clean energy, a world which is good. There's no authority and there's no suppression and there's no, there's no arrogance or ego. A good world where there's an abundance of materialism, an abundance of energy, and, and the world is a beautiful paradise. And that's the world that we're waiting for, and it will happen imminently. There will be this transformation. So this is a world where there will be a complete transformation. Unlike anything we have now, or that we've known for the past few thousand years, since Adam and Chava were in Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden. But nevertheless... It says when Mashiach will come, the miracles of Mashiach will be so transformative and so powerful that the exodus from Egypt will pale in comparison. The exodus of Egypt will be like, like a candle when the sun is shining. What's a candle in comparison to the sun? It doesn't add anything. The sun is shining. The new redemption will overtake us that we won't even, we'll hardly even remember the redemption from Egypt because it, it will lose its significance. Because this redemption is so much deeper and so much more profound and so much more transformative and permanent. But nevertheless, there'll still be a mitzvah to remember the Exodus from Egypt. Because even when you're at the level of transformation, there is an advantage to the level of suppression. Because the personal choice that you make when you have to suppress your negative urge and instinct. And you're only doing it because God is asking you to do it, because it's the right thing to do. That moment, that personal choice, it's at that moment that you see the divine spark within the person. The person exercises freedom of choice. You see that a person is not just a cog and a machine. A person is not just a robot. A person, you see the freedom of choice. You see that a person has something truly divine and that a person is really unpredictable. And therefore you can make a quantum leap and you can go act in a way that's completely contrary to your nature and go overcome your nature. And there's something precious, there's something beautiful about that moment that's, that, that's irreplaceable. That, and there's no substitute for it. So even when we achieve a transformation, you have to remember there's another path to God. And that's the path of suppression, of overcoming difficulty, rising above your nature, exercising your freedom of choice, making that personal choice just for the sake of God. There's something so pure and so innocent and so infinite about that moment, so godly, that Hashem says, you can't replace that moment. One is not a substitute for the other. There are two paths to God. And we'll discuss that next week.